Welcome back to School Spirit. Season two. Season two. Uh, a whole season has been recorded, and hopefully people have listened to some of them. Some of you have, and hopefully you're still here. Yeah. We ended with Lucky 13, and we're ready to move on to season two. Um, you know, things are going to stay the same. Some things are going to change. Things are going to change for me because Colin. <laughs> I... And with child. Woo! School spirits, baby! <laughs> so uh, that means that we will have two options for drinks. We have our regular drink, and then we have a spiritless drink. And we have a special guest. Yeah, we actually have a live studio audience for, for this episode. Tasting. But we also have a guest. So you guys will be able to decide how much we're lying to you when we tell you what drinks taste <laughs> like. Our special guest is Anna. Hi. Anna's our artist mm-hmm. and our social media director. We always give her shout outs at the end. And my sister <laughs> and a real live teacher. Wow, so many things. <laughs> <was> so complex. <laughs> um, I'm Catherine. And I'm Holland. We're PhD students at Vanderbilt. Yeah, we are former teachers. So I used to teach English. Math for me. And here we are talking to you about research, but in a way that you can hopefully digest and helps you. Cool. Just like this drink. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about this drink, Catherine. All right. I'll talk to you about the spirit drink first. So what we're going to do for season two until school spirits baby is here (laughs) is we are going to have a mocktail that you can also put alcohol in and create a cocktail. Or if you like it to think of it the other way, we're going to have a cocktail that you can make without alcohol. Yes. Making a mocktail. Yeah. So this, since it's the start of a new school year, is a Mo Summer Hito. Yeah. Hopefully you want more summer and your summer wasn't just summer school. Yeah. I wish that for everyone. No summer school for anyone. But So for all of you people <laughs> who had summer school, make yours extra strong. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So this is, you take... A bunch of mint and lime wedges, and you muddle them with a teaspoon of agave. And if you don't have agave, you can use simple syrup. And if you don't have simple syrup, you can probably just use sugar. Yeah. Get those sweet little packets out. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a spirit drinker, you add a shot of rum. I like clear rum for this. A third cup of coconut water. Mm -hmm. Shake, shake, shake. With ice. With ice. Pour on more ice. But strain it so you don't get all that mottled stuff. And then if you top it with club soda, mm-hmm. and then if you're feeling fancy, you add another wedge of lime on the little corner of your glass. We were feeling fancy and we had extra lime. We so, were. Yeah. Um, the spiritless version is basically the same, except that instead of adding rum at the beginning when you've muddled, um, you are going to add a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar, which I guess is supposed to give it that same kind of bite as a regular drink. Um, I'm excited to hear. I know, I know. Like, I'm a little nervous about it, but it's only a teaspoon, so it can't be that crazy, right? And it's part of Anna's free compensation for doing all of the work we made her one (laughs) too. I'm very excited. So we have a guest taster. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) 
divine. <laughs> Anna nodded. She forgot that this was a podcast and you can't see her. I did not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't normally drink rum, so I'm a very big fan of this. It's, you can't really, taste yeah. the alcohol in it at all at for all, us. No. Yeah. Um, you know, mine's fine. I don't know that I really like the apple cider vinegar made that much of a difference because it kind of just tastes like coconut water and sparkling water mix. Yeah, the coconut comes through yeah. in ours, but I kind of like it because it's not too sweet. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes mojitos can be... Really sweet. Like oh, a rough. you know what? I got it more there. I think it was just that the sparkling water was like sitting on top. It did Ooh, say top good. it. Oh, you like it? Mm-hmm, I like it. Maybe we just need a little mixer. Oh, yeah. It's good. Mm. Mm. I like a good mojito. Yeah. I'm feeling like I'm getting more... I, the coconut water is making me less de- dehydrated <laughs> as I drink it. So this is a re and dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically healthy. This it's is a healthy drink. This is a, a smoothie. <laughs> All right. Well. Can we your audience? Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. We are doing something a little different with this week's theme. Yep. Mm-hmm. We focused a lot in season one on research that centered on classroom or school level mm-hmm. ideas. Um, this season, we're going to try to incorporate a little bit more of a whole zoomed out picture of the institution of schooling at a national level. Yeah. And we'll still do the classroom-focused stuff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. sure. But we felt like there's a lot of stuff that goes on beyond schools and classrooms that are at the very least interesting Mm -hmm. and maybe more relevant to people who listen. Yeah. And I think that you can't just say, like, practice-based articles are the only ones that really affect teachers because I think these, like, broader systems that are going on – you know, around education are also important to think about because they affect your day-to-day life, even if you're not aware of it as a teacher. So it's kind of where we're at. So our topic for this episode is policy, which is like one of Catherine's favorites. Actually, I love, yeah, policy. You do love policy. Yes. Yeah. I've taken a few policy classes at Vanderbilt, so I'm going to go first. Yeah. But now that I think about it, my article is like loosely tied to policy. <laughs> But it's the researchers are people with PhDs in educational policy, some of them, and work in policy departments and publish in policy papers. Um, and the article that I'm going to talk about has direct implications to policy. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. I'm excited. It is called Mapping Inequalities in Local Political Representation, Evidence from Ohio School Boards. And it was published in 2018 in a journal called AERA Open, which is the journal that is affiliated with the big organization that education researchers attend conferences to, Mm -hmm. publish in. It's like a researcher-focused journal. Yeah. Not something that I would necessarily pick up as a teacher. No. Yeah. There are four authors on this, and there are four because... Two of them at the time were PhD students. The first author is Brendan Bartanen. At the time of the article, he was a PhD student at Vanderbilt. Oh, do you 
Have you, do you know of him at all? I don't know him at all because I. He would have been a student like way before our time. Exactly. Because I just got here in 2018 and that's when this was published. He, when he graduated in 2019, he became an assistant professor at Texas A&M. In August, he's moving to University of Virginia to be a professor there. I really like how you have the deep dive here on him. Like you're like going through all of his like LinkedIn profile and stuff. You know, this is my favorite part. I spend like equally as long learning about the authors as I do reading the articles. At one point in his life, he was an eighth grade science teacher in Arizona. Nice. I know. His research interests include race and gender gaps in teacher observation scores, estimating principal effects on student attendance, and the relationship between principal race and the racial composition of a school's teaching staff. That's super interesting. Yeah. So I think that last interest of his is kind of what drove this article, and you'll find out why. The second author is Jason Grissom, and I've actually taken a class with him before. He's a professor at Vanderbilt. What? Yeah, he's a real interesting and smart guy. He actually did not get his PhD in education. He got his PhD in political economics from Stanford. So he's like a big... All tied together, baby. Big economy guy. But he's always studied education, like the system of education. Mm -hmm. So his... Interests lie in political economics as applied to the education system in the U.S. Gotcha. Uh, he applies perspectives from policy, public administration, and economics to the study of school and district leadership, educator mobility, educational equity, and the intersections among all three of those. The third author is, I think you pronounce her name, Ela Joshi. Mm-hmm. It's E-L-A is how you spell her first name. At the time of the article, she was also a PhD student at Vanderbilt. She graduated in 2020. Prior to her PhD, she was also a teacher in Arizona, but a fifth grade teacher. Did they know each other? This Uh, is always our ultimate question. This is always our ultimate question. (laughs) I always try to draw relationships between my authors that may or may not exist. Uh, She now works for SRI International, which was formerly the Stanford Research Institute, which is an independent nonprofit research institute. So she's not affiliated with the university. Her research informs policies and practice for historically underserved populations and the way people interact within and with educational organizations. And then the last author is a wild card. So the last author is Mark Meredith. He is an associate professor at UPenn in the Department of Political Science. Mm. He got his PhD at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. And his research examines the political economy of American elections. Weird. Okay. And the reason he's a fourth author on this is because this paper is about school board elections. Super interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But he's like not like his general research is on like American elections, mm-hmm. not just schools. So I thought that was like super cool yeah. that he was brought in on this paper. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Moving on to the summary of this article. It's a quantitative article. It's super quant focused. I'm not going to talk about the methods because. Minus two. And I was like, there's a lot of equations. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I could figure it out. I don't want to. (laughs) You might be interested, but you'll get the gist and the importance of this article without the methods. And if you want to hear them, just reach out to us. and Or reach out to the authors. (laughs) We'll send it to you. (laughs) Uh, So 
it seeks to understand which neighborhoods, like geographical neighborhoods, mm-hmm. are represented on local school boards within a school district. So you figure like Nashville's entire school district mm-hmm. has a lot of like local neighborhoods yeah. in it. So which neighborhoods are actually sending people to the school board via elections and which neighborhoods have never sent people to the school boards within elections. I mean, I have some feelings about how that works in Nashville already, but right. Mm -hmm. Um, so what it does is it uses data on the home addresses of school, school board candidates, which they have to put when they like apply to run. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like an application or what, but they have to put those. So they gather home addresses of school board candidates to investigate the geographic distribution of the candidates and the winners. Essentially, they want to see if the people who run and get elected for school boards are representative of the schools and the districts that they are elected to represent. Mm -hmm. So the data that they use specifically was the addresses of the winning and losing school board candidates over two separate consecutive election cycles for every single school district in Ohio. So they looked at the entire state, every school board election for two cycles. Seems like that'd be a lot. Yeah, crazy, right? There's like 610 school districts in Ohio, I think. But what's kind of cool about this, and you'll see this in their results, is since they looked across the entire state, they were able to look pretty clearly at urban versus like rural results. Mm -hmm. So into the results, this is the juice. (laughs) Schools with school board representation have lower percentages of free and reduced price lunch students and higher levels of achievement relative to the rest of the state. So when I say that schools with school board representation means that someone who is zoned to that school is on the school board. That makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. So someone who, somebody whose school, like like their kids go to that school and they're on school board, they're statistically going to have a, like a lower percentage of kids who have free and reduced price lunch. Yep. And that school is going to have higher achievement scores. Well, this, I, I mean, the thing is, is like, it's not surprising, but, uh, but it's interesting. I, yeah. Keep going. Cause I, yeah. I feel like there's lots to be said about this. This is one of those articles where it was like everything I read, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But no one, you can say that you feel like it's this way until you're blue in the face, but these people actually went and found like quantitative data that correlates these things, which is cool. And the percent of the number of kids in a school that has free or, free or reduced price lunch has the strongest relationship with school board representation. So of all of the factors that they looked at, the free and reduced price lunch, whether it was high or low, was the biggest correlation Mm -hmm. to whether or not a parent or a person that was zoned to that school was on a school board. I mean, that makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The school districts with larger disparities between neighborhoods with and without school board representation were near the major cities. So when you looked at the major cities, the ones that sent like all the school board members were from like small pockets of the area versus big pockets. That was like more focused on urban. So it's like more of a problem in urban settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Neighborhoods with higher median incomes and house values are more likely to have school board representation. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
median age and percent of adults with a bachelor's degree are positively correlated with school board representation. And Democrat-leaning neighborhoods are less likely to have school board winners and candidates. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is super interesting. That is not something that I would have thought would be the case. Yeah. So they don't know for sure, but in their article, they actually posited like a guess as to why mm-hmm. that was the case. And their guess was because... Republicans in general have more wealth. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. And Democrats in general have Have less less wealth. wealth. And wealth, as they found, is a factor of, as measured by house prices, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. is a factor that plays into who's going into the school boards. I mean, but the thing is, is like you, I mean, you have to have money to like run for these positions. Like it's, it can, I mean, how you have to have money. You have to be a citizen Mm -hmm. to show proof of citizenship. There's like a list of like all these requirements that you have to have to be able to run. Because I remember where I used to teach that school district. I remember this woman was on school board and I was like, your daughter doesn't even go to school in this school district. Like you pulled her out and put her in a different school district because you didn't think this school district was good enough for her. But, like, you didn't have, like, I mean, she was, like, at the top of the income for that area, but she didn't have quite enough money to, like, move into the city. So it's, like, who are you making this? Like, you don't even, the decisions that you're making, like, you don't, you don't even want your daughter to go here. So, like, how, why should we trust you to make decisions for the district if, like, you don't trust it for your daughter's education? Like, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So why is this important? School boards set policy priorities, hiring and monitoring district administrators, and budget allocation Mm -hmm. decisions. So they're actually really powerful bodies of people, and they're elected by regular citizens. Mm -hmm. They're also generally pretty close elections because just not many people run, not many people vote. Mm -hmm. I know the last Nashville election, the School board member in, like, my zone won by 34 votes. What? Yes. It's crazy. Studies have shown that the identities of school board members can affect their decisions and enactment of the role. So, for example, electing board members of color has been shown statistically to correlate with the increased hiring of administrators and teachers of color. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. But this study shows that school board members are more likely to come from wealthier, whiter, and better educated neighborhoods than other neighborhoods that are within the same district, which also suggests that school board members are likely to live, are more likely to live in the enrollment zones of schools with fewer low-income students and where achievement levels are much higher. Mm -hmm. So if you think about perspective, these School board members are being elected from these, like, white and wealthy, high-achieving neighborhoods. And so that's the reality of that district that they know, that they experience in their everyday lives. Studies have shown that their identities affect the decisions that they make on that board. So what is being prioritized Mm -hmm. on that board if this is being shown to be the pattern? The standout quote, I think, is really interesting to think about. It says, 
Our results raised concerns about whose voices are at the table and whose interests are represented in local school decision-making. Local board members are elected systemically from more advantaged neighborhoods. To the degree that this descriptive representation translates into how policies are made and how resources are distributed, these geographic patterns may represent a further source of advantage for more affluent communities. Yeah, because they're getting to decide, like, what programs get funded, like, mm-hmm. which teachers get to stay and which teachers get cut. Where like, the money goes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I remember there being a big thing about the rainy day fund in my district. Like, we need to keep this much money in the rainy day fund. Like, why? Well, a lot of people did use it for technology during COVID. Yeah, but at the time it was like, like this money was desperately needed for certain schools, but they were like, well, do we really need it? And and then the thing is, is like schools that have like a really strong like parent-teacher organization or something like that, like in those affluent communities, like they maybe they probably don't need that money as much. And I think if you're coming from that school, you're thinking like, well, do they really need this money? Like our school has plenty of money for this club and this club. Right. And so like, it doesn't really make that big of a difference when it, in reality, it definitely does. I agree. I loved the framing of that quote too, because I feel like when people make a case for why more affluent neighborhoods and schools perform so much better and stuff like that. It's, it's a lot of these things like their kids get tutoring. They don't have all of this extra trauma. They have access to a strong PTA and people aren't even thinking beyond that of they elect the people that make the decisions and Mm -hmm. determine where the money goes. So I loved that framing of this article because just the idea of like a further source of advantage that goes beyond that local school was really interesting to me, especially because those school board members are controlled by the voters of that district. So teacher takeaways, they're pretty obvious. You can see where I'm going. And like I said, this is not a classroom zoom in. It's a system zoom out episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still think there's some things that you can do. So Find out who your school board members are of the district that you teach in. Yeah. I didn't know when I was a teacher. I had no idea. I think I went to, I had to go to a couple of school board meetings for something. And that's when I knew like some of the school board. I was also like, it was the only high school in that district. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a little easier to, and we were right beside central office where the school board meetings would take place. Right. And you would see the signs for school board members. Yeah. But like. I think it's really important to know who they are. Yes. And if you live in the district that you teach in. Mm -hmm. What is affecting your voting decisions? How are you getting... Do the parents of your students know when school board elections are? Mm -hmm. Like, they're elections that are... They're sleeper elections. They're not heavily advertised. It's not like people are walking around the grocery store and being, like, advertised for school board elections in a lot of places. So It's mostly just, like, at the school that you see signs for school board elections. Exactly. So, like, what about parents that, like, aren't coming to the school to pick up their kids? Their kids get sent on the bus home. Like, how do they know? Right. Especially in secondary schools. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. So what are ways that – easy ways that teachers or people within schools can just raise awareness to parents of when school board elections are so that Mm -hmm. their vote is counting in the representation? I mean, it takes me back to the more recent election and what happened in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Like, when people actually are going out and voting, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. 
what would it look like to advocate for your students to your school board? Mm -hmm. If you know this paper has shown at a statewide level, and like, I don't think Ohio is this unicorn. This is going to happen everywhere. Everywhere, If you know that you have kids that are in a really high free reduced price lunch school, they're being underrepresented on that school board. So they're going to need an advocate. It might not be you, but it could be somebody within Mm -hmm. your school. What would that look like for you? Yeah. On a personal level, if you don't live in your district, who is a school board member in the district that you live? What does that have to say about your community? Are you going out and voting? Stuff like that. Like it it goes beyond your classroom too. Your teachers, I feel like, are game changers in every aspect of their life. That's like part of being a teacher because they care at home and at school. Um, I'm just thinking right now, like, ooh, <laughs> to figure out who's on the school board where I live. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it's a little different because, like, I don't – I'm not teaching right now in schools and mm-hmm. I don't have kids in schools. But, like, we work with the local district and I'm, totally. I have no idea who the school board member – And even if them, we but- didn't – what I mean, what happens in schools affects everybody, oh, yeah. right? So it's like this is an easy way, a free way for members of a community to make change in that community yeah. just by voting. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people really think about how powerful school boards mm-hmm. are and how powerful voters are to vote for school boards. And so few people do. They yeah. can be changed by, like I said, 34 votes in mm-hmm. Tennessee, which is – I don't think that uncommon. I think it's a pretty slim margin. And like the, I mean, MNPS school district is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of money and power. Yeah. So to think that like an election was swayed by 34 votes in a district like that. I mean, that's. Exactly. It's crazy. So yeah, I thought it was just a really interesting article because it made me, when I first read it, it made me think like, Wow. I'm not sure a lot of people think critically about school boards, but it is something that you have if you choose to an active role in. So could be kind of interesting to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like that article. The thing is, is I feel like it kind of relates to my article because I'm also talking about like money <laughs> and policy. Well, that's um, the thing about policy is it's, it's always related it's to money. tied to <laughs> economics, yeah. But I, my article is, is, I feel like different than what I would normally look at because it's specifically looking at the wealthiest percentage of school districts in the country. Um, so mine's also looking at districts. But the title of this article is The Curious Case of the Missing Tail, Trends Among the Top 1% of School Districts in the United States from 2000 to 2015. And this article was an educational researcher from 2020. Wow. Um, yeah, this is so the top new. tail. I know, I know. So the author of this paper is uh, Dr. Matthew Gardner, who's an assistant professor of educational leadership at Penn State. Um, and his research examines the social and political context of educational finance policies. And he is interested in the history of resource disparities in education, which like, yeah, Um, the political dimensions of contemporary funding policies and the play between geography, school finance and inequality. And he was a teacher um, in Harlem and Brownsville in New York City before doing this. So with this article, he starts off with kind of the obvious. He's like, yes, we know this. School funding matters. Right. And we were just talking about this with school boards. 
but school funding is impacted by income inequality in the United States. We are missing a lot of information about schools in the wealthiest districts because they're considered outliers, which is really interesting, like from a statistical perspective, like yeah. we just don't know about those wealthiest districts because like, according to the rules of, you know, of these statistical methods, like we just don't count them. But he's like, they're very important because the thing is, if they're outliers, they're the tail at the end of the graph, it's still like swing it, it that points to the amount of inequality between what's happening over here at the tail and what's happening in the norm right so he says that even if we take out the top 0.1% of wealth distributions it understates the growth of income inequality so understanding what's going on there is important okay that makes sense right yes okay so here, so he has some reasons for like, this is why we should care about public. So this is public school funding, right? Mm -hmm. We're not just talking about, we're, this is not about private schools at right. all. Like we know that like That's totally the private school community game. is crazy. Yeah. We're talking about the wealthiest public school districts. Which there are some bougie public schools in this um, country. Let's look at the data, Catherine, because <laughs> it was astounding to me that th these are public schools. Um, okay, so he says this is why we should care about public school funding in these wealthy districts. With more school funding, you have increases in standardized test scores, graduation rates, and future adult earn earn earnings. So that's like research that has been done. We know this. Right. Um, so there was this adequacy principle that started in the 80s around school funding. So the idea is that if you have a minimum level of what everybody needs, then it shouldn't matter if some schools get more. Okay. So as long as people are getting this basic, like some schools might have more through this and this, but like as long as you have the baseline, we're good to go. Okay. Um, here's the thing. When you have more money in some districts, it diminishes what's happening in poorer districts because they're never going to have as many assets as those wealthier districts. Mm -hmm. So sure, everybody could like be getting what they need at the middle, but then once you have more money in these other districts, like they're getting more access to what you were talking about earlier with tutoring or yeah. these different courses or just like any kind of extracurricular like thing. We set the bar at like basic needs, yeah. like in life, like food, water, shelter, mm -hmm. then that doesn't actually explain away anything else in the world. Yeah. You, you have to look at what happens when you get more than your basic needs. Yeah, yeah. What happens then? Well, a lot more. <laughs> um, so we also know that income inequality has increased because of wealth accumulation of the few, right? Mm -hmm. Especially talking about this in the last election and what that means. Totally. Um, but we don't know if education funding is working this way too. So okay. there hasn't been studies on that. Um, so they, we know that spending on wealthy children has increased. Right. And the assumption is that parents that are anxious about handing down wealth to their children would increase private donations um, along with having to pay more in taxes because of their wealth. Um, or it could be that they're able to maintain better schools with a lower tax rate just because there's so much wealth in that area to tax. Man, could you imagine living in a world where you were anxious about passing down your wealth to your children so you gave it away? It's, isn't it, it's crazy. I didn't know that was a problem people had. Yeah, yeah. We need to make sure that this money stays right here. <laughs> um, so, and, and even thinking about like some of these families, some of these districts have so much money that yeah. they don't, they're not even worried about the tax rate. They're like, like yeah. let's just tax it at 2% because 2% in this district is like 20% in this other district. Right. Yeah. 
he does his methods here. It's a descriptive analysis. So it's combining district level revenue and enrollment data from this, the Census Bureau, um, information about the labor market in which districts are located from the National Center for Educational Statistics, Education Com- Comparable Wage Index, <laughs> <laughs> and district level data on the characteristics of students attending each school district from the National Center of Education Statistics. Okay, so this is looking at 2000, 2015. Okay. He does exclude some places. So like they exclude schools with free or reduced lunch. Okay. They're not even included in here. They exclude charter schools. So technically those are public schools, but you know, it doesn't work the same way with public funding. Totally. Those are excluded. Um, And he excludes DC, Hawaii, and Alaska, just because um, I think he said Hawaii only has like one school district for the entire state. And Alaska is like super spread out. And so excluded those. And just as a reminder, he's focusing on public schools and uses intense equations. (laughs) So here is what he found. Okay. Basically, districts in the top 1% of the national funding distribution were, surprise, surprise, white, affluent, and suburban. Makes sense. (laughs) The relative wealth of these districts has increased sharply from 2000 to 2015, 31.59% 31.59% in 15 wow. years. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. Okay. So there's these characteristics of these districts. So I'm just going to read you a couple of, of this. Cool. So in the top 1% in these districts, the per pupil revenue, $21,000 spent per pupil. Okay. In the bottom 99%. So the rest of everything, this is not even like the bottom 1%. This is just like, Everybody else in the country that's not in the top 1%, the average is 7,000 per pupil. Oh my gosh. It's astounding. It's a this is these are public schools. This is public school funding. That's crazy. Oh, but so the the percentage of revenue from local sources for the top 1%, 71%. Mm-hmm. And then the percentage of revenue from local sources for everybody else is 43. So you see like a lot of this revenue is just coming from local sources. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> they do get less revenue from federal sources. Yeah. So like 2% versus 8%. But still, it is wild. If you look at the percent of like uh, racial enrollment, so like percent of white enrollment in these top 1%, 72% uh-huh. versus 50% everywhere else. Wow. Latinx enrollment, 12% versus 25% everywhere else. And then the percentage of black enrollment, 5% versus 14% everywhere else. A third. Yep. The state with the greatest concentration of students in this wealthy top 1%, New York. That makes sense. And the county, Nassau County. And then the state with the greatest concentration of students everywhere else would be California. Greatest concentration of students, LA County. Yep. So thinking about the gap between the top percentiles. So let's see. So he says that, um, so he's looking at all the states too, right? To see if like this is only happening in certain areas or if this is like countrywide. And he finds that the gap between the top percentiles in every state has increased. So the wealthy districts all around the country, they've all sharply increased. However, there's evidence to show that the concentration of revenue in each state is shaped by public policies at the state level. So like, for example, the bar graph shows that the percentage of change in school district wealth in Texas from 2000 to 2015 was astronomical, like in the upper 90%. Oh my gosh. Like, how is that even possible? I have no idea. Um, so I'm thinking, what I'm thinking, and this is, he didn't say this in the article, I'm just like making a guess, is that this is happening in suburbs around Houston. Okay. Um, and maybe even around Austin. The thing in Texas is that you can put down an independent school district wherever you please. Right. 
So you can see how this is going to create yeah. pockets of wealth um, in different places. Yeah. So like, for example, Ean School District, which is like smack in the middle of Austin, okay. was created in 1958, um, which those years are interesting, right? Uh-huh. Why, why would a new school district be created in 1958 in the middle of Austin? I wonder what was happening then. <laughs> what a weird time. Huh. Maybe white people did not want to join the same schools as people of color. Um, and so, and they also don't share those local revenues, right? right? So they can accumulate a lot of wealth in those schools. Yeah. So he makes the point that increases in these, in these wealthy districts are not explained by increases in need-based funding from state governments. And there's data for that online, but like it's, it has nothing to do with like increased in like federal funding or anything like that. Yeah. Well, I feel like just the fact that most of that funding came from 71%. Locally, yeah, is a it's big just indicator the of that. Yeah, areas. So overall, these changes in funding at the top may undermine the efforts occurring at other schools. So what they're doing is it's just increasing gaps between rich and poor, and then it leads to increases in aggregated spending over time. So I think this is interesting too. The thing is, is like if these wealthy districts keep spending more and more and more and more, then like that baseline keeps getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And so then when you have poorer districts, they're increasingly having to, to like spend more tax money. Yeah. Like they're having to up the ante too when there's like, they don't have the money to up it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like then it's, it's just like, you're constantly trying to spend. It's like keeping up with the Joneses, right? Yes, and exactly. But there's never, because the Joneses have like, $50 million and you just like, you can't keep up with them. Yeah. It's like everybody else trying to keep up with Bezos. That's just not possible. And I think the thing is too, when you think about like uh, public school funding on a federal level, like that ultimately means that like you're going to pay more taxes federally too. Right. Yeah. So it affects, it ends up affecting everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's not really affecting wealthy people because we see <laughs> that like taxes don't mean anything for them. Um, but it, it it really does. Like you could say like laissez faire, like I don't care, whatever. Like wealthy districts can spend whatever they want, but in the end, it does affect everybody. Right. I looked Dr. Kelly up on Twitter, and he has a nice little summary of this article. That I, I love when they do that. <laughs> That's like my favorite thing. So here's a summary from Twitter of this article. So he says, nationally, the relative wealth of these districts increased sharply. There's a large variation between states, but resource concentration in the top percentile increased in the large majority of states. These findings can't be explained by efforts to provide additional resources to students with the greatest needs, and they suggest the ways in which the concentration of affluence from growing economic inequality may be changing school funding. Yeah. Uh, So a standout quote from this article is, although I make no effort to provide a causal explanation for the growing concentration of wealth in the top percentile, these results suggest that public school funding has started to exhibit what researchers consider a distinctive feature of rising inequality, enormous resource accumulation among a select group at the top. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, we talk about income inequality in, in the United States. And it's, you know, I, I don't know that we think about it in terms of like how that's affecting school districts and like how, I, I think when we think about like wealthy people, we think that they all go to like private schools and that they're in this whole other world. But no, like these are people that because they have so much money and they live in areas where everybody has so much money that they're all... 
they can create their own public schools and right. they're going to be at the level of like private schools because there's just so many resources there. Yeah. And then it's just negatively affecting everybody else in a public school on down the line. That's crazy. Yeah. So I guess I'm not quite sure what my teacher takeaways <laughs> are from this. I don't know. I think it could be interesting to like look at the resources of your own school district um, and see like what the per pupil expenditures would right. be there. Um, I think that would be super interesting. I think for public schools, they have to publish that I'm, information. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they do. Just to see, like, I, I, I hate when people are like, yeah, I teach at a Title I school. Because it's like, it's like this weird, braggy, like, it's like a white savior complex kind of thing. And it like indicates. It can be. It can be. Yeah. But it also like indicates like, I, I don't know. I feel like nobody says title one and they mean it like in a positive way. I think everybody means it as in, you know what that means? There's poor people here, you know? But I, I think, I think it's worth it to like see like what are the resources that your school has? And like, I think it goes back to then, to then your article, like, who's on the school board and who's making the decisions for like what taxes can be raised. Totally. Um, you know, like, are they trying to like lower taxes for a certain reason? Like, dude, everybody hates taxes. Like I, I would also be taxes, interested but. to see like, how did your district start? Like, are you in a small district that is encompassed by a larger district? Mm-hmm. What is the disparity between that district and the mm-hmm. larger district? Yeah. Like, just having information about that sort of thing on a larger scale would be really helpful to just inform how you think about how your district is operating, where your money comes from, stuff like that. I think the geography and history of school districts is super interesting when you think of, like, all the changes that have happened in schools in the past, like, 50 years even. Yeah. Because I'm sure a lot of school districts are probably older and they probably were in existence around the time of Brown versus right. Ford. And like, what are the, like, what's the movement that's happened? Like, yeah. I also think it would be so interesting to see like where these wealthier public high schools send kids off to college mm-hmm. versus the other ni- yeah. 99%. And looking at that at a larger scale would be fascinating and might make secondary teachers feel a little better about themselves because I know like my husband's public school that he graduated from sent tons of kids to Ivy Leagues and mine sent none, even though I graduated with 600 kids. Oh, I don't like, I think I was going to apply to a school like out of state and like the guidance counselors were like, we don't do that here. (laughs) Yeah. And it's wild. Like, it's not like the kids at my school were dumber. Like, there just is no way that a valedictorian of 600 kids that applied to an Ivy League school is not as good of a student or dumber than one of the 20 kids that got into an Ivy League school from another high school. Like, that's just not the case. But then you think about if it's, like, in that wealthy district, like, what were all the, like, things that they were able to put on – their resume, like what are all these extra opportunities that they had and things that they were involved in and all the clubs that were offered and AP and IB courses and like all of these things that, that just, it, yeah, it, I, yeah, it's not even about, I think it's, it is about the wealth, but it's also about what is the resources that come with that wealth. Yeah. 
So I think for me, like a big general takeaway from this episode is a, if you work in one of the 99% school districts, which probably you do, if you are a 99%er, which 99% of you should be, yeah. don't get discouraged if yeah. you feel like you're, you're running an uphill battle because you are yeah. like, you're up against this, you're up, up against Jeff Bezos. Like it's, you're up against the tail. Yes. Don't, don't get discouraged by that information. Don't feel like it, you just can't do anything to yeah. make it win. I think what's interesting about this is like information like this makes it so important how you treat your students in the classroom because there are these huge factors that you may or may not have control over. Mm -hmm. You can go vote for a school board. You can be informed. You can look at your district finances, but you don't get like a say ultimately at the end of the day where the money goes. You can only potentially elect people that go tell you. And so... What you can control is what's in your four walls Mm -hmm. and make sure that that's the best place for your students that it can be. Yeah. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Wow. That was fun. Yeah. I think that was really fun. I feel like we went down some roads we like haven't gone before. So yeah. So interesting though. Gosh, there's so much in education. Like when I was looking for policy articles, because I don't study it often, I was mm-hmm. like, wow, you, like somebody thought to look at that? Like there's so <laughs> much about education that's out there that I had like yeah. no idea was yeah. even a thing. So hopefully this season will have a lot of more surprises. Yeah. And if you, our listeners, have any suggestions for topics, yeah. we would love to have them. So- Even if it's not stuff that you like feel like you need to work on on your own practice, just like what interests you about the field that you're in. And we can do that research for you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This episode is brought to you by Emma. Emma Reimers. Who has done amazing work for us because it turns out we still don't know how to use our microphones. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) And Anna, who not only is our social media manager, but also a guest drinker. (laughs) (laughs) Her favorite position. <laughs> Her favorite job, guest drinker. Yeah. And hopefully we will have some exciting more guests this season yeah. while Holland is on maternity leave. <laughs> From the podcast. From the podcast. Just caring for a new baby. And yeah. by the end of the season, we'll have a baby guest. Yeah. And, you know, be back on the spirits. And be... <laughs> What counting down until we're back on the spirits. Um, well, check us out um, on Twitter. Follow us there. We are um, at school spirits underscore. Yes. And Instagram school spirits podcast. Mm-hmm. And our website is schoolspiritspodcast.com. Yep. And you can email us suggestions, questions, comments at Questions, questions at schoolspiritspodcast.com. We figured it out after a whole season. And we're going to end on a high. So on that note, cheers. Cheers.